Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is April the 7th. I got it right, finally. 2017, this is episode 1979 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is time for the Expert Council Show. I've got five Expert Council members lined up for you today, and I'll be batting cleanup today. I have fast and easy primal meals from Gary Collins of the Primal Power Method. I have dealing with a dead high from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. I have treatment of dislocation injuries from Doc Bones of the famous duo Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. I have security and screen doors from Brian Black of ITS Tactical. And I have the ins and outs of leasing grazing land from Darby Simpson from the Grass-Fed Life. I also have a question on fixing up an old truck or getting a new truck for me. And I'll be taking that as a cleanup today. All that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1979. And because the episode is 1979, and I have to say, I have memories from 77 and 78 faded, flaky ones. 1979 will be the first history segment that I can honestly say I remember the year 1979. I don't remember everything about it, but I remember things about 1979. I remember where I was in 1979. I remember moving from Pennsylvania to Florida. I remember starting kindergarten in 1979. So... I'm kind of turning a corner for me in the history segment. Several of you will turn that corner later, and many of you turn that corner 10 years ago, depending on our age. So I just thought I'd note that as we move forward in history here. 1979, the Three Mile Island nuclear blunder from Alex Shrugged. Smallpox becomes the first disease eradicated through human intervention from Southpaw Ben. And America held hostage, day one, contributed by Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year. Alton Sterling died 2016, age 37, fatally shot by Baton Rouge police for carrying a gun while selling CDs. In retaliation, several Dallas police officers were shot dead. The shooter was cornered and then blown to bits by a robot carrying a bomb. I hope all that was clear. I think we all remembered that. Adam Brody from the OC, whatever the heck or whoever the heck that is. Keisha Knight Pullum as Rudy Huxtable, the youngest child on The Cosby Show. Remember her. Jennifer Morrison, House. She was on the show House as Dr. Allison Cameron. I liked her. Kate Hudson, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. She's Golden Ho Goldie Hawn's daughter. Okay. Bam Margra, skateboarder and star of Viva La Bam and Jackass. This year in film, The China Syndrome, this movie about nuclear power plant accident, is released two weeks before the real Three Mile Island nuclear accident occurs. 
Apocalypse Now, Alex Jones says, I've never seen it, but my sense is that it is crazy as all get out. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely one of those movies worth seeing, though, I think. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Alex says it's a highly produced version of Star Trek, the series, but without much substance. I have to say it was the worst Star, worst Star Trek movie of all. It was terrible. It was horrible. And it was stupid. And I've still seen it more than once. Um, Alien. Science fiction takes a whole new direction. The movie scares the peewaddles out of me, says Alex Rugg. I don't know what a peewaddle is. In comedy, The Jerk, The Muppet Movie, Meatballs, Being There, and Monty Python's Life of Brian. Out of those, I like Life of Brian, but The Jerk was one of the funniest movies ever made. Steve, uh, Steve, Steve Martin at his best. This year in TV, The Dukes of Hazard, Heart to Heart, Knott's Landing, and spinoffs like The Facts of Life from Different Strokes, Benson from Soap, and Trapper John M.D. from Match. This year in music, Heart of Glass from Blondie, I Will Survive from Gloria Gaynor, Hot Stuff from Donna Summer, and the epic album The Wall from Pink Floyd. And 11 fans are killed before a Who concert begins. The crowd outside the stadium hears the band performing a sound check and believes the concert has already begun. The doors open, the crowd rushes in, and 11 people are crushed to death. Such is modern consumerism. So you're in video games. Mattel's and television game console is test marketed. Milton Bradley releases the first handheld game console. Microvision games come on game cartridges. Atari releases asteroids in the arcades. The quarters are dropping like mad. Another one of my favorite video games, Asteroids and Space Invaders, man. Uh, the T1, or TI-99 for a computer from Texas Instruments is introduced. It had a chiclet keyboard and like little mint candies, weird but popular enough. I'd say that's one of the old computers. I've never even seen one, never touched one, don't know what it looks like. I'll have to look one up to see. In other news, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. This will become the Soviet equivalent of Vietnam. Global cooling, snowing in the Sahara Desert. It will snow again on December 19, 2016. I'm not trying to prove global cooling. I'm pointing out that anyone can, quote, prove, unquote, just about anything by choosing events that support their narrative and dismissing the ones that do not. So use caution. Nah, we don't want to use caution. We just want to use hysteria. Uh, Skylab falls out of orbit and hits Western Australia. And the Sony Walkman goes on sale in Japan. Alex Strug says he bought one. I bought one, too. I, I think... I think every 80s kid had a Walkman. And they seem so ridiculous now compared to what we have today. Anyway, I, oh man, you know, Three Mile Island, Smallpox, and America Held Hostage. I got to read the Smallpox one because it gives me a chance to prove that I am not anti-science and anti-vaccine. Through the use of vaccinations through the 19th and 20th century, the smallpox virus was eradicated, besides a few samples kept to be studied in both the USSR and the U.S. In early 1950s, there were an estimated 50 million cases worldwide. To help prevent the spread of the virus, the process known as ring vaccination was performed, which consisted of vaccinating all of those living near the site of an outbreak. Early on, the U.S. and USSR donated vaccines to the World Health Organization to be used to help prevent the spread of smallpox in developing countries. However, by the early 1970s, over 80% of the vaccines in use in developing countries were produced there. The last outbreak of smallpox was in Birmingham, United Kingdom. It was the result of smallpox being used for research at the University of Birmingham Medical School. In response to this, all known stocks of smallpox were either destroyed or transferred to one of two labs with the highest rating biosecurity, according to the World, World, World the WHO. <laughs> two sites were in the United States, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the USSR, uh, USSR State Research 
Center for Virology and Biotechnology Vector. In July 2014, several vials of smallpox were discovered in an FDA lab in Bethesda, Maryland. So we don't know if they were really all gotten rid of, because we just found one, you know. Uh, my take by Southpaw Ben, the eradication of smallpox shows how even mortal enemies, ones who were mere moments away from eradicating each other from the face of the earth multiple times, can work together to achieve a laudable goal. Some skeptics might ask why only two viruses have been eradicated through vaccinations, if vaccinations are all they're touted out to be. There are several factors that combine to allow smallpox to be eradicated. The first major reason is that humans are the only vector for smallpox. I mean, the only way to get smallpox is from another person with smallpox. It can't jump from human to animal and back to another human. Another major reason for it is that its symptoms are extremely visible. It has an extremely short latency period where one carries with virus without displaying any symptoms. The last major reason the smallpox was so efficiently eradicated is that once a person has smallpox or receives a vaccine, they have lifelong immunity to smallpox. This is because smallpox is a relatively stable virus with very few mutations. In other words, perfect for combating with vaccinations. I have skepticism about the current vaccination policies in the modern world. I believe that our children are vaccinated too early, too much, too often, and too many times for the same thing, and are given too many vaccinations at the same time. And I believe that that can't help, uh, that, that can't, there's no way that can't be damaging to a developing immune system. And that, you know, mild symptoms like mild encephalitis, which is basically the brain uh, swelling in the head of a newborn or a young, very young child, that can't be good. I also think that vaccines do at times have side effects, sometimes quite seriously, and that when that happens, um, it's a serious thing. And anybody who's honest will admit that, including the people that make the vaccines, because they have the little inserts that tell you all the horrible things that sometimes happen. And I think when we pump six or seven vaccinations into a child in one go and they have an adverse reaction, we don't know which one they reacted to. One, two, all of them, we just don't know. And if they do react to more than one at a time, it's, it's, it's highly likely that the reaction would be more severe if the, if the vaccinations were you know, divvied up over a greater period of time. And I do believe some of the vaccinations that are being given today are actually quite effective, like the smallpox vaccine was. And some are almost completely useless because of the mutation rate of, 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 uh, of the viruses. So I think that what has actually happened, people are like, they're trying to exterminate us. No, 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 this is what's happened. Like any industry, the pharmaceutical industry has a first duty to make a profit, and the more vaccines they produce and sell, the more money they make. So they will come up with any reason to add one to the schedule, to do one more round, etc., because that is the, the nature of the worst part of capitalism. It really is. And that's what it all comes down to. Now, I have a message for my fellow skeptics in the world of vaccinations that feel like I do or maybe even more uh, fervently than I do about this. And that is, when you say stupid shit like, vaccinations didn't get rid of smallpox, it was going down anyway, and it would have went away anyway, you lose all credibility with anybody with a modicum of understanding about vaccinations, about science, about reality, about logic, about truth. To say vaccinations are completely ineffective is, is, is dumb. To say that, that vaccinations are completely unsafe is also incorrect. There's risks associated with vaccinations. And I think what we've done is we've, we've pushed past the reasonable risk threshold with the frequency and volume. 
Any of you that call me anti-science for that, you have your head so far up the ass religion of science, you can't see straight. I think that's a completely well-thought-out, logical thing. So I'll wait for my hate mail to come in over the weekend from those of you that can't accept what I've just said. Anyway, want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. Okay, before we take our first call, let me remind you I'm putting together the vehicles, the stranded vehicle show. Put a post out on it yesterday. If you would like to participate in this show, send me an email with TSPC vehicle in the subject line. Some of you are posting your stories on the blog. It's okay, but please don't do it anymore. Um, the whole point is to keep all of it for the show and not early release it. But what this show is, is stories of how you or a friend or someone you were with were in a vehicle, it broke down, it was stranded, and you used some kind of like MacGyver-like solution to get yourself home, or at least limp it to a repair shop or something like that, where you really didn't have, you know, like exactly what you needed, but you made it work. I think we can help a lot of people in the future by talking about the things that happened in the past. That's why we do a history segment, and in this case, our own personal histories and how we overcame things, because... The reality is there's almost always tools and resources around you, and we tend not to look for them. I'm just saying. With that, let's go ahead and take our first question for an expert council member. This one for Gary Collins of the Primal Power Method in Off-Grid Living. It is a question on doing fast, easy, quick, primal meals. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com answering all your health and wellness, primal lifestyle questions, off-the-grid living, simple living, life simplification. Um, also, my new book is out, Going Off the Grid, so make sure you go out and get that. It's available on my website and also Amazon and in Kindle format. Uh, question today is how to prepare a primal meal, you know, when you don't have anything ready, something that's very quick. And I have some real standard meals that I use in that case. What I always do is I keep hard-boiled eggs in my refrigerator pretty much all the time. Real easy to make a salad with hard-boiled eggs. You know, you just get some dark greens, some, you know, I usually use like spinach leaf, hard-boiled eggs, some carrot slices, um, you know, uh, maybe some uh, 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 anything. I mean, the salad, you just throw on some uh, good salad dressing. And it's real easy, some almonds, uh, raspberries, a real simple meal, and it's a go-to for me. That's really quick. I use that all the time when I'm in a hurry. And also just eggs in general. I always have eggs in my refrigerator, and it's because they're easy to prepare. As you guys probably know, I eat breakfast all meals of the day. Uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, it doesn't matter. I love breakfast. 
So you could scramble up some eggs or over easy, what have you, with, you know, maybe a couple sausage, organic sausage links, you know, some, uh, you know, some sliced tomatoes, perfect meal, um, perfect quick meal. And, and the kids love breakfast all the time, so it works real easy with kids as well. And here's one that might surprise you is I use a, a lot of ground buffalo bison is what I use, but it can be ground hamburger, ground pork, ground chicken, ground turkey, what have you. And I get it in basically the uh, sealed square, pound squares. And what it does is it, it's real easy to cook, actually, even if it's frozen. What I do is I stick it in a pan, put a lid on it, flip it over a couple times, and start breaking it apart. And it actually cooks pretty quick, quickly. And one of my main meals with that main ingredient is I'll make throw some broccoli, some carrots, and some tomato basil sauce, and some spices. And I have a quick easy meal ready to go. And another thing you can use is a product called Miracle Noodles. So you can make a faux spaghetti out of that same recipe I just gave you. And what they are is uh, it's my, mainly fiber. I don't even think it has any carbohydrates in it. And like I said, it's like a faux noodle. It doesn't have very much flavor, but it gives you kind of a noodle consistency to a dish. comes in angel hair, uh, uh, fettuccine, and I think there's also uh, a beaded pasta as well. So that's an easy, those are my easy solutions and go-to meals when I just don't have anything prepared. I hope that helps you guys. Also remember, if you're an MSB member, you get 10% off all your your entire order on my website at primalpowermethod.com. I'll, I'll throw in what we did last night. It's really not like an off-the-shelf one. Like you do have to have meat defrosted or whatever for it. But I did chicken thighs with uh, sautéed greens and zucchini noodles last night. And, I mean, it was pretty simple. I got a cast iron skillet, mainly so it could go in the oven. And I put down some chili garlic oil. I did a little seasoning on the chicken thighs. that was uh, like some, um, some cumin, some paprika, some pepper, some salt, some garlic powder, some onion powder. I think it's a jar that I'd mixed up before. That's kind of what I felt like was in it when I tasted it. Like, yeah, this will work. And... Um, Sprinkled that on the, you know, get a couple little slits of the skin so it render the fat a little bit better. And uh, sprinkled that on the skin side, got the skillet good and hot, put it skin side down, and then seasoned the back side. Might as well, it's over the pan, now you can't spill any. And I cooked it skin side down until it was crisp. That was probably about seven minutes. Uh, flipped it over, dropped it in the oven at 325 degrees for, um, for tw uh, about 30 minutes to, to finish. Right before it's finished, Taking just another skillet, a, a stick-free skillet this time, melted a, did the zucchini noodles, and you can look up the, the 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 peeler that I put out this week for how to make zucchini noodles, or you call them zoodles, uh, but had them all ready to go, salted, drained, uh, dried, and uh, dropped about a tablespoon of butter in the pan, and pitched them in there, and just warmed them through. As soon as they're hot, they're done. They come out one on the plate. A tablespoon of bacon grease goes in the same skillet, still nice and hot, so it melts real fast. Big handful of uh, spinach, baby spinach and baby arugula. You can buy it organic in a, a clamshell. Throw it right in there and just start stirring it until it wilts. Hit that little salt and pepper onto the plate. Chicken comes out, goes on the plate, done. Um, I think that the total time it took me to make that meal was about 40 minutes. I think the actual time of doing something was about 10 minutes. And it's fantastic. It's home-cooked. It's wonderful. Um We made four chicken thighs, even though we were only eating one each, and that way we have some left over. It's pretty cool. 
And so I thought I'd throw that in and just kind of expand your thinking when it comes to primal paleo type thinking because what I just gave you, except, you know, some people are purists on the dairy thing. The butter would be out. You know, instead of using butter on the zoodles, you could use olive oil or something like that. I, I'm not that purist. Um, but that was fantastic, easy, fresh, a variety of different flavors. Uh, and you can substitute any meat with that that you wanted to. So that's just a, another option. Next, I have a question for the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, on dealing with a dead hive and rehabbing it so we can put new bees in it. Michael, take it away. This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'll take your questions on bees, apiary management, and making of mead. My question is, Michael, my hive died. How do I save my infrastructure and try again? Here's our backstory. So the hubby and I have gotten into bees and harvested some golden delicious last year. We had a weir hive for two years, but last year we caught two wild swarms, which we put only in available hives, which were both Langstroth. Unfortunately, when we peaked in this year, both our Langstroth hives did not survive the winter. This is our fault, and it was due to excessive moisture in the hive. We talked to our mentor, and she said we can reuse the hives, so we pulled the honey out. That was worth saving. Now what do we do? I have foundations that are covered in wax shells, empty and open, some honey that is not edible, and a lot of dead bees. Can I save this foundation wax for candles? Or should I throw the whole thing outside and let the local bee population clean it up for me? Should I break out the scraper and some elbow grease and reclaim the hive manually? Or should I just rip out everything and start all over again? I'm going to buy another package of bees to launch into these hives, and we have high hopes of catching another swarm next year. We caught two and missed two, and it was a great year. Please give us information if you can on this. I have a front hall project waiting for me. I don't know where to start. Thanks, Cheryl. Well, Cheryl, this happens to a lot of keepers, and we all only try to have a 10% loss. Some do better, some do worse. Now, why did your bees leave or die? There's a lot of things that go with that, from it was a late swarm, the size of the swarms, the laying queens, the temps in the hives, the moisture, cold temperatures, not enough. I mean, there are so many things that cause hives to die out or not stay. Now, uh, if you're asking what to do now that you have a dead, a dead hive, well, that's what it's called. It's called a dead out. Instead of dwelling on the loss, shift your focus on hives that have survived the winter and try to identify the differences between the healthy hives and the dead-out hives. Conduct a post-mortem analysis of your dead-out hive. First, note the location of the main cluster of dead bees. Is it high or is it low to the hive? Check the weight of each box. Do some boxes contain honey storage? If there's large clusters of bees and plenty of honey in the hive, it may indicate that they simply starved within inches of stored honey unable to move due to cold or unwilling to separate themselves from frames of brood which they were caring for. This will help you the next time, and this will also help you with your record-keeping skills as well. Record-keeping is essential. These type of records can be used over and over again to kind of figure out how you're going to do better next time. So now let's clean out the hive and get it ready for your new bees. You can make a washing solution of a hive frame cleaning solution of two gallons of water to one cup of salt and a quarter cup of vinegar. No need to rinse it. Bees like a little bit of salt anyway. Just spray it all over the inside of the hive on the frames that you're going to use. 
You can keep any frame that does not have cap larvae in it. Open comb is good for them to start cleaning and getting ready for the queen to start laying in. So you can keep all the frames that have had capped honey and open combs. The frames with dead bees, brush them off, then spray the mix. The cap brood and the frames that have bees in the comb that you cannot brush out, just get rid of. It'll cause mold, causing black mold or American fowl brood. Now many people will tell you that some dead bees are okay, the new bees will clean them out. If you cannot brush the bees off the frames and they're stuck in the comb, get rid of them. There's no sense of going through a lot of trouble just to have problems the next year. Now the drawn out frames are ideal for starting nucleus colonies from strong colonies that have survived or welcoming new packages so that you'll be getting a good start to have drawn comb and getting started. So get those hives cleaned out, set them up, and get those swarm traps out and catch some bees. Uh, remember after July 20th, any swarms that you catch will have a hard time making it because it's too late in the year. So if you just take this box apart, you said you've already harvested some honey, but you do have some extra. You can set that extra honey that wasn't good enough to harvest for the other bees to eat. Just wrap that up in silophane, put it in the refrigerator or freezer, pull it out, let the bees eat it when they're able to. Or you can use that for bee feed to start your next hive. Just remember, you do not want any dead bees in that hive or cat brood. If you can't brush them off and you can't get everything cleaned out, just wash it real good and get rid of the stuff and put new foundation in it. Uh, if you do have wax comb that you're going to use for starting bases, I would wrap that up in silver frame and put it in a refrigerator or freezer so that way it doesn't get to wax moth. That way when you start next year, you're not getting any wax moth larvae. But yeah, take those hives, brush the dead bees out, make an assessment of what you see, see if there's been mice in there chewing and anything like that. Uh, you'll be able to see that if there's uh, feces or anything else you know just do a good hive analysis brush everything out clean everything up spray some mix of vinegar and salt and get that going store some of the comb make the boxes ready and then when you get your packages next year insert those frames that have honey on the sides the ones with brood wearing comb in the center and get those bees in there so they can start working cleaning out the comb and get that queen laying right immediately Introduce some pollen patties so she'll really start laying some heavy brood. And heck, you might even be able to split that hive towards the end of the year to make a nook. So I just want to let you know this will help you get started. And don't really worry about a dead out. It's all a learning experience. But if you learn how to recoup, recoup these dead outs, you'll get hives starting in the spring faster for faster builds. And this will help you with your record keeping so you know kind of like what you're missing and losing. Uh, try to introduce a quilting box to your beehives. That way it absorbs this moisture and you won't have that problem the next time. If you want to see about building quilting boxes, look at Permaethos' page. We're coming out with a quilting box build to show you how to build these quilting boxes with AB Friendly Company's feeding tubes, which we think are very necessary. Well, I want to always remind you, as always, I'm Michael Jordan telling you to buy your honey from a local beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry because we all have to start someplace and help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help too. Um, 
when I was losing ducklings this year, it was more than I wanted to lose. But several people made a comment that I've made many times myself when it comes to animals, if you have, especially young animals. If you have live ones, you'll have dead ones. You're going to have some losses. And I think beekeeping has a longer learning curve than a lot of people think that it does. Because um, it seems like it seems weird to me in some ways myself because you know there'll be some guy with a, a wall. He's finally figured out that you know that's where the bees are. They've been in there for ten years. Uh, he'll call a beekeeper to tear his wall apart. There'll be a, a gazillion you know bees in there, tons of honey running out of the wall. The bees have been living in a wall of a house, completely untended to for you know God knows how long. And been fine, and yet we put bees in a box and we dote on them, and we still have losses. It's gonna happen, and it really is important to have a mentor and someone that can come out and recognize things that you can't, tell you things you're doing wrong that you don't think you're doing wrong, and accept the fact that you'll have some losses with anything. And it again is why when people make the laundry list, I'm gonna get chickens, I'm gonna get goats, we're gonna get bees. Start with one, and at least get it. You know, you'll be perfect, but get the system nailed down, the infrastructure. Everything to where like your daily life with that particular animal is pretty boring, and then add something else. And, and do see bees as livestock. Don't see them as just like this thing that sits on some part of your property that you don't have to do anything with, because it just it doesn't work out that way. I've learned myself over my first couple of years. Next up, I have a question for old Doctor Bones on bones. Yep, like a dislocated finger. How, Doc? What do we do with that? Hi, Joe Alton here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, and other books. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Bill Rockwell, who writes, I dislocated my finger a couple of months ago. I popped it back into place and splinted it for a couple of days. It's still stiff, more so in the morning. It has not regained full motion. X-ray shows a small bit of a fracture, but the orthopedist says it's all healed at this point. One only thing to do is physical therapy to get full motion back. Is there anything other than manually working it back and forth that I can do to assist recovery? Salve, oils, etc.? Well, Bill, figured dislocations, a common injury, is anyone who plays a contact sport can attest it occurs when the bones of the finger are moved or dislocated from their normal position this is traumatic and is something that will take a while to get better if you have a dislocated finger the finger will usually be crooked swelling increases the longer it's not aligned so it depends on how long it was before you actually put it back into place this is usually one of the easier dislocations to fix if you do it quickly Although some dislocations may be treated with local anesthesia, many are not, especially in the field, and that may have been what happened with you. X-rays, however, as happened also with you, are, also, are performed to rule out accompanying fractures. You seem to have had one, and that will complicate and slow down the recovery. Now, to prevent further injury to the finger, of course, when it happens, you should remove jewelry, such as rings, apply ice packs for 20 to 30 minutes to the injured finger every three to four hours, and this goes on for about the first two to three days. Make sure to elevate the hand above the level of your heart to decrease swelling. Now, you're beyond that, of course, at this point, and probably had your finger placed in a protective splint or buddy tape to the healthy finger next to it. 
Healing takes several weeks at least, but full function of the injured finger returns probably in about 12 to 18 months. A lot of people will deny that and they'll say it occurs much earlier and many times people will be functioning just fine after just the three to six weeks that the splint is on. However, a lot of people will continue to notice discomfort or weakness in that finger for a period of time. There may have been some nerve injury or other things like that. So you should be patient. Now, salves with Arnica may be helpful. And, of course, simple anti-inflammatory meds like ibuprofen will help as well. Now, the most important thing here is to be faithful with the physical therapy. It may take a while, and you might see some permanent swelling or the joint may not appear as it did before the injury, but you should regain full function over time. This is Joe Alton, MD, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. And don't forget to check out our entire line of medical supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You can get 10% off anything in the store if you use the code for Member Support Brigade subscribers. Thanks again. Okay, many of you know what I'm going to say. Comfrey. And I know that sometimes it may sound like when, when you know, that I'd be the person like, he has liver cancer. Put comfrey on it. It'll be fine. No, I, I, don't, I don't look at it that way. But, but injuries to tissue, to bone, to joints, to ligaments, uh, to tendons, I don't know of anything that works better than comfrey. And you can make your own salve or whatever. But, again, I stand by my you know, ongoing recommendation of Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone uh, Ointment. I have a link in today's show notes for it. It is something that so many members of this audience have used on strains, sprains, bruises, uh, dislocation injuries, and I've never heard anybody say, I tried that crap and it didn't work at all. Um, I think one of the hardest things about making sure you get the most out of a comfrey ointment is when you start feeling better, remembering to keep applying it several times a day until you have a full recovery of the injury. And I'll say that while comfrey can help with long-ago um, chronic pain-type injuries and stuff like that, that it seems to me that there's a period of time right after an injury where the body is focused on repair. And it's, it's if you want the best result, it's important to get that product on that injury while it's in that mode of repair. Uh, I believe if I had known about this back when I seriously screwed my shoulder up in the military, then my shoulder would be a lot better than it is today if I'd been applying it back then. I've used it, and it does reduce the pain, but I don't know that it can repair the damage that's, you know, 25 years, or, no, jeez, almost 30 years old at this point, right? Um, I just don't know that it can do that. But when I seriously screwed my knee up, and I seriously screwed my knee up last year, um, it was... The main thing that I think helped me with a very quick recovery for the serious nature of the injury and avoiding any need of surgery. So a dislocated finger, I'd have that thing lubed up with with, with Dr. Christopher's or my own homemade uh, comfrey ointment every day. And I recommend the Dr. Christopher's product because it's got some other things in there. Bones mentioned Arnica, and you might add that as well. That's not in the complete tissue and bone. And I've heard good things about Arnica, though I've never used it. But there's some stuff in there like lobia and skull cap and stuff like that, white oak, that actually is quite good at uh, aiding repair, uh, dermal, re- uh, you know, cellular regeneration, which is a big part of what Comfrey does. Uh, but it's also some stuff in there that really helps with the pain. So you've got the Comfrey doing the heavy lifting with uh, helping the body heal, and you've got these other 
elements like lobula and, 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 and white oak bark that actually are fairly good topical pain relievers. And I, I'm just going to say again, I've had great results with it. And if it were my finger, I would have this stuff on it. I'll leave it at that. There's a link to it in the show notes today as well. Next, I have a question for Brian Black of ITS Tactical. We haven't heard from him in quite a while. Uh, from a guy who uh, wants, his wife wants a screen door, and he has security concerns. Brian, take it away. Hey, TSP. This is Brian Black from ITS Tactical answering another expert counsel question. Uh, this one comes from Jake, who asked, do you have a security screen door that you could recommend? My wife likes to let in fresh air and daylight by leaving the front and back door open. Due to my disinterest in her being stolen, I don't want her to do that unless I'm in the front yard. Do you know of a security door with a bug screen that could provide ample security from mosquitoes and humans, but still allow light in and fresh air? Any direction would be greatly appreciated. Jake, um, a quick search kind of led me to a product from a company called Menards who offers a Larson Laramie security storm and screen door. So basically it's a metal reinforced door. So it's got bars basically, but it it doesn't look like some of the, I don't know, the questionable ones you see in some houses. This is a fairly good looking one, but they have an option to have a removable fiberglass insect screen to offer ventilation or an interchangeable tempered safety glass panel. So, They're about 200 bucks, and you can find them online. I'll make sure uh, you get Jack a link. But it's just something I came across in searching. I've never really searched for something that's a screen and security door uh, just because I'm not a big fan of having something that is a an outward-facing door like that. I would rather reinforce my front door with a, a solid door. So that's something I would recommend too if you if you're into upgrading your home security that you also look into a solid core either steel door or wood door. That's a, a great security tip. Something I've mentioned before, um actually a lot of this comes from kind of the security talk I have with kind of running a home security assessment and it's some stuff I've brought up in a a past workshop that Jack's done too when I was there in person giving a lecture. But Kind of looking at your home with through the eyes of a burglar will really help you kind of start to identify things like this around the house that you need to upgrade security-wise. And I'll make sure I link an article uh, or send an article link to Jack as well, kind of uh, an article I wrote on running a DIY home security assessment. So hopefully that helps. Um, just some other products that are out there you might want to think about in terms of door security are some kind of jam reinforcement, like with a, a company called Door Devil or a company called Armor Concepts, both make, Armor, Armor Concepts, excuse me, both makes products that provide security solutions for doors like that. Um, Armor Concepts also does some security solutions for sliding glass doors and double front doors, which are notoriously hard to secure. Um, and what you're doing is preventing kick-ins, uh, like a break-in via a kick-in if somebody kicked in your front door. So, Take a look at those as well, but hopefully that helps, and thanks for the question. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources that explore your world and prevail against all threats, www.itstactical.com. Thanks a lot. Good stuff from Brian Black. Um, guys, I don't get a lot of questions for Brian, man. Send, send in some more stuff. The tactical stuff is what, what Brian's all about, home security. Uh, guns and gear. Uh, check out ITS Tactical. Brian's a good friend. He's been a friend of the show for a very long time. He launched ITS Tactical uh, almost one year exactly after I launched TSP. Maybe he was uh, two months before my one-year anniversary. 
And uh, it was one year after uh, I went full-time with TSP that he was able to stop taking design clients and go full-time with ITS Tactical. And it was exactly one year after Dorothy quit her job and came to work with me that his, his wife, Kelly, was able to do the same thing. We kind of paralleled each other that way. Uh, and and having having done it myself, I know the dedication it takes. I know what he's put into it. He's a great resource, so let's make sure we're utilizing him. Uh, next up, let's take a question for Darby Simpson on leasing land to graze cattle. This will go really well with the question I answered about it yesterday. This is this this calls actually why I did not, or this this question is actually why I did not kick that one to Darby because he had such a similar uh, thing, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear you know my amateur take on it, his professional take on it. So Darby, take it away. Hey there, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grassfed Life Podcast. This week, I've got a question from Karim. He is asking about potentially leasing some pasture and trying his hand at raising cattle. And he's wanting to know how he gets started, if there's any books I would recommend, and how he should get going with uh, putting something together. So, uh, Karim, welcome to the world of grazing cattle. Uh, it's exciting stuff, man. It's actually my favorite enterprise that we do here on our farm. And I got a few tidbits here for you that I think you'll find helpful. Um, the first thing I would tell you to do, I, and I don't know what state you're located in, but you want to try and find a location that's not too terribly far from where it is you're living. I mean, if you have to drive, you have to drive. But I tell you, it's it's kind of uh, kind of a pain in the neck to be driving real far a couple of times a day to be checking on animals. So if you can find something relatively close to where you're where you live, you know, hopefully not more than maybe you know 10, 15, 20 minutes away at the very most. That would be my strong suggestion to you. Um, it, you know that that way you're not spending so much time on the road going back and forth to manage the animals. The, the closer to home, the better. I guess that goes without saying. But I've I talk with a lot of people and they they ask me about you know renting farms that are 45 minutes to an hour away, and I, I just I think that's too far. Um, I I think you need to live closer to where your animals are for a number of reasons. Um, the second thing you'd want to look for would be Logistics. Um, if you're talking about a completely raw piece of land and you need to develop it from scratch, if, if you've been at this for a while, if you've got some experience, if you know that you can make money with grass by fattening up animals, that's one thing. Um, but if you're starting out brand new, and it sounds like you probably are, then you don't want to make any more investments than you have to. So with that, um, logistically, I would, I would tell you to look for a place that's, um, you know, maybe got some water that's already developed so that uh, you've got a good, clean, steady source of drinking water for the animals. If there's a well there, possibly some post hydrants, things of that nature. Maybe you might need to, um, you know, fix a couple of things up or enhance it or whatever. But I, you know, I wouldn't tell you to, uh, be, you know, drilling a well and, uh, building a pump house or any, anything like that. You need to find a place that's already got access to water. Um, and if it, you know, if it had a small building on site for you to use so that you could, uh, you know, set up a corral for loading and unloading and things of that nature, that, that'd be, that'd be good as well. Um, if you could find a place that's already got some pasture established, even if it's not the best, that's okay. Uh, we've got a base there to work with. We can enhance it by rotationally grazing the proper way. We're, we're going to build soil. We're, we're going to help that pasture come back in time. 
But if it's if it's already there for you and you're not having to you know plant something from scratch by taking over a row crop field, that's that's even better. Um, and you know I'd be willing to to look for you know some marginal pasture land and maybe a smaller amount of it, maybe um, you know five or ten acres, something small that you can just you know get a few animals on that uh, someone else isn't really using for anything. Uh, maybe that's on a uh, a corner of an existing farm, and they're they're doing row crops and not any livestock, and they'd be willing to lease that to you if they're not getting any money from it now. If it's not something they're currently leasing out, and they can get a few bucks out of it, then you probably got a pretty good uh, you know chance of of getting getting a lease on that property and putting some extra money in their pocket. They're going to be really happy. Um, and then lastly, and you know, this would be a real bonus would be if there's, if there's already fence on the property. Now, if there's not, I don't think that's a deal breaker. If you're serious about this and you got to be willing to, to build fence and you can, you can build some semi-permanent fence, you know, for a pretty reasonable cost. Um, so if it's there, great. Um, if it's not, it's, it, it, it's not the end of the world. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about some resources for that here in, in just a in just a moment. Um, the other thing I would tell you to think about is the length of your lease. There is no way um, that I would go into leasing a piece of property if I had to build fence and establish pasture. Now, if all that stuff's already there, this is maybe a little bit of a different conversation. But if I've got to build fence, establish pasture, and put a pretty good amount of resources into that property so that I can graze cattle on it. There's no way I do anything less than a five-year minimum contract. I just, I wouldn't even consider it because you're going to have so much upfront capital cost that you'll be lucky to recoup all that if, um, you know, if you're not there for at least five years. And if you're putting that kind of effort into somebody else's land, uh, you're obviously building up their long-term assets then there's no reason they shouldn't be willing to sign a five-year lease at, at least for you. Um, and maybe with an option, you know, to um, lease it for an additional two or three or five years after that five years is up, you know, and that should be your option if you want to continue to, to do that. So uh, that's something I would tell you to think about. Now, uh, chances are you're not going to find the perfect piece of land. I, I think if you look around a bit, you, you can probably find something that's got, you know, some developed water, possibly a building, and maybe even some marginal pasture land. Um, you know, building fence the right way, while not super expensive, is not exactly cheap. Uh, around here, we plan on about a dollar fifty per linear foot. And if you're talking about putting up a few thousand feet of fence, you're obviously talking about thousands and thousands of dollars. So something you can look into, and I've, I've talked about it on the, on this podcast before, is what's referred to as the NRCS. And there's a, a really good podcast that Jack did with Rob Kaiser uh, probably about a year, maybe maybe a year and a half ago, Um on, on an NRCS experience that Rob had. And while Rob was building a greenhouse, a, a lot of what he learned applies uh, to this. And it, basically, they can provide some funds. Um, they are a division of the USDA, but they can provide some funds for you to, to build fence if you're going to have ruminants out there. So that is something you might look into if there isn't any fence. The, the big thing you need to be aware of is that the landowner is going to get a 1099 for the funds that the uh, that the government 
you know, hands out once the project is complete. So just make sure that, you know, if you do go that route, the landowner is completely aware of that and is on board with it and isn't surprised by getting a taxable income statement at the end of the year. Uh, if you want to read more on that, uh, you can actually go to my website at darbysimpson.com, and there is a three-part series out there on working with the NRCS and kind of what my experience was and what to expect. It's not an exhaustive read on the subject, but I think it will give you a really good idea of what what it is the, the, the program is all about and kind of how it, how it works and how it flows. So... Um, the, the last piece of advice I really have for you would be, you know, to, uh, be willing to, to pay, um, for a couple of years up front to secure a lease, to show the landowner that you're serious about this. Even though you haven't done it before, if you're willing to write them a check for, you know, two years up front, then that's probably going to help you secure your first lease. And I think that's something you should be willing to do if need be in order to, you know, get this thing secured. But re regardless, you want to get all this in writing and have a contract drawn up that protects you, protects the landowner. And you had asked if there were any resources um, that you should be reading, if there were any books. There is a book on the subject, and it is the definitive book on this, and it is called No Risk Ranching by Greg Judy. Uh, Greg is a phenomenal guy. He does a lot of ranching in Missouri. And when he started out, he had very, very little acreage of his own, and um, he basically figured out a great way to lease land around him and build long-term relationships and get long-term leases with these landowners so that he's got a, a place to uh, to graze his cattle herd. So that, if you're going to do this, I think that is the first thing you should do is, you know, to, to read that book by Greg and, uh, you know, get an idea of how it is that he structures leases. I have to lease land back for my family, but it's, it's, it's not complicated at all. I'm not working with an outside force. It's a good relationship. It's very easy. There's really not even anything in writing, but you definitely need to have something in writing, uh, to pull this off. So that's what I got for you, man. I hope you found that helpful. Uh, if you've got any more questions about this, feel free to shoot me an email through my website at darbysimpson.com to learn more about me. You can go out to that website site. There's a lot of free articles out there. I also offer one-on-one -on -one consulting. And if you're a uh, MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those consulting services. And then lastly, I tell you to uh, head on over and check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast, either at iTunes or at permaculturevoices.com. We've got over 50 episodes out there now, so check those out. Once again, thanks again for the, uh, the questions. Keep them coming, guys, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Good stuff from Darby, and that makes me feel better about my answer. I was really heavy on the infrastructure and water requirements and making sure you understand what kind of supplemental feed you're going to need. So I think I did pretty good for being an amateur at this uh, cattle thing. I've, I've yet to stick my toe in that water. I don't know that I ever will. My land certainly can't support a cow. Uh, if I ever do anything, it'll probably be Dorper sheep because I love me some lamb. I just love me some lamb. Oh, man, I love me some lamb. Anyway, uh, the next one is for yours truly here, and here's the question. It says, hi, Jack, should I fix up my old truck or get a new one? I have a 1966 Ford F100 half-ton pickup long bed with a 352 engine, three on the tree transmission. My father-in-law bought the truck new in 1966 and Harley used it. He sold it to my brother-in-law, who drove it for a few years before they sold it to me. It has less than 100,000 miles on it. The problem is the original engine is leaking oil, and white smoke pours out of the exhaust when you start it up. 
The body is sound except for rust on top of the cab, some dings and dents. I could probably get the engine rebuilt or replaced and the body repainted for less than $10,000. Is it worth it or should I look into getting a newer truck? Thanks, Wayne. Um, Wayne, I think this is a very personal decision. I know what I would do. If I could do this truck and make it basically like new for ten grand or less, I would restore the truck because you don't you don't get this opportunity often. And I want to talk about a few things. White smoke pours out of the exhaust when you start it up. Does the white smoke pour out of the exhaust when you start it up and then it doesn't smoke anymore? Or when you drive it down the road, every time you hit the gas, does a big giant cloud come out of it? Those are different things, and the level of uh, damage to the motor is going to be, you know, based on that, will tell you a lot about how much is wrong inside. With the limited mileage on it, the known history of it, it's probably never been driven around with, you know, no coolant or oil or something like that, or gone, you know, 80,000 miles without an oil change or something stupid. It's most likely you just have a head gasket issue, and there might not be that much work to make that motor sound again with under 100,000 miles on it. Um, I also say that's a long time for every component on that vehicle to be sitting around. It was a garage kept or kept outside. What climate are you in? I don't see that here, so I don't know what part of the world you're in. You know, if you're in a world with a lot of salt on the roads from winter, there's a lot more damage done to vehicles that old that old than places where they don't use salt because either they just don't or because there's just not the snow to make it required. So I think that to to make this decision instead of saying I think I can do this for ten thousand dollars. I would take it to both a body shop and a mechanic and say, I want this. To, you know, you don't let me tell you first of all what not to do. Do not try to make this a classic car that you're going to take to car shows. Whatever amount of money you put into it, it will never be worth what you put into it. it, it this is not a highly collectible vehicle. This is a vehicle that when it's fixed up nice, a guy walking through a parking lot sees it and goes, wow, that's really nice. I'd like to have that. But if you say, okay, you can have it for $25,000, he laughs at you and walks away like he should. Okay, It's just it's not a 67 Fastback or something like that, right? Um, it's a good motor. Um, I thought maybe it was a Typo. It was a 351, which the 351 Cleveland is one of my favorite motors that Ford ever built. But I know it doesn't seem like much different. There's difference beyond the displacement between the 351 and the 352 as far as how that motor is made. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a decent, solid motor. If the, the the body and all of the components are in the shape you think they are, it is, is a textbook project for rehabilitation. However, you might start piecing together all the things that really need to be replaced. The front suspension may need to be rebuilt. The bushings might be gone. I mean, you really need to know what you're dealing with. But $10,000, I would do it, and I'll tell you why. You don't really have anything into it right now, right? And it's not worth very much right now. If you do this, could you sell it for $10,000? Probably not. I'm going to tell you, there's a little bit of money sink here. I don't know that you... I think a lot of people would look at it, but getting someone to actually part with the money might be really difficult, even with a rebuilt motor and all that stuff. You know, um, it's just... Again, it's one of those nice-to-haves, but it's not anybody's dream vehicle. A lot of people aren't going to like the three on the tree. And that's another thing there, too, right? Um, a lot of people say they don't know how to drive a stick, let alone a freaking three on a tree. 
which if, if you don't know what that is, guys, anybody out there, a 300 tree is a three-speed manual transmission that's a column shifter. So it's three on the tree. So you've got a clutch you got to push in for you guys that are young and never drove a car with a clutch in it. And, and the, but when you shift, you're shifting on the column like many automatic trucks would have a column shift. Um, so what you would have, though, is a really nice vehicle that honestly is really easy to work on. 66 was before all of the bullshit that came in the 70s happened. There was some, some, some really cool cars made by like 71, 72, but they were already starting to attach all the bullshit to them. Um, by 74, it was over and done with, and, and, and just they just made a mess out of vehicles. And I, it's you know Today, because everything is computer-controlled and all, There's a trade-off with it, but the, the, you don't want a vehicle made between 74 and 80. 80. Uh, you really don't. I just I want to say that with a few exceptions, and maybe some trucks are in that. Um, here's a couple things you could look at. Find out what it's going to take to rebuild this motor, and then find out what other Ford motors would bolt up to that transmission if that transmission's in good shape. I don't know. I didn't research it for you, but with Fords and Chevys and Dodges, a lot of times, you know, Just about any motor from the era will go in the, it'll bolt up to everything. Okay, so the reason I say that is you might find a, a already rebuilt motor off the shelf that could drop in there that would save you money over having this one rebuilt, depending on what's wrong with it. And again, a, a 351, a 302, both of those would be good motors for this vehicle. Um, I don't know that they'll bolt up. I'm just saying, you know, that's something you can check into. Like, look up that truck. What other what other motors were was it available with, if any? And if if there's others, it's probably that everything will bolt up. But that's just a consideration. Um, how should you really make this decision? If the cost of the repairs will not then be equated in the value of the vehicle financially, you shouldn't do this. So if you're going to put ten thousand dollars into a truck. You could only sell for $8,000. You shouldn't do it. And that's probably what you're doing. But this isn't, you know, a 15-year-old truck that's that's got no sentimental value or no collector appeal. Because it does have some collector appeal. And if you do this project, if you maintain it and you keep it restored and you wait long enough... It may come to a day when it has even more value because there are a few of these old 60s model pickups and stuff out there for projects and stuff like that, but there's less of them every year. And I just think it'd be cool. And again, it would be a really easy vehicle to work on and maintain and do your own maintenance with, and it's got a family history. If it was sitting in a yard somewhere and you found it, I don't know if I would give the same recommendation, but also probably you wouldn't know the history of it, and you wouldn't know as much as you do about what's really going on underneath. So I think you need a thorough inspection by somebody that would do the body work and the paint work, and a thorough inspection by somebody that will do all the mechanical work and get an actual price before you make this decision. My personal opinion, and I've got a lot of flack for this, but vehicles, modern vehicles, if you're going to go out and buy a new vehicle, Buy what you want. Don't worry about what you can work on or not because you can't really work on any of them that good. And the vehicles are, that are being made today and have been being made for the last 10 years are the best vehicles that have ever been built from a reliability standpoint. A reliability standpoint. From an ability to do your own maintenance, no. 
But this is the reality. When somebody's asking, what do I buy so that I can do my own maintenance? You can't do your own maintenance. You don't know how. So you can buy, go out and buy any old piece of shit jalopy that, that was from an era where you think you can do your own maintenance and figure out if you're going to be able to do it or not. Don't, don't go spending a lot of money on reha you know, rebuilding something for that if you don't know how to do it, unless you're going to do it yourself and learn by the process of, of doing it. And uh, I, I kind of fall in with Ed Wallace on this. He's a local radio guy. on the weekends. When, when, when anybody calls in and says, well, I'm between these three vehicles, and he'll usually say, which one do you like best? You know, do you like the, 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 the Nissan, the Toyota, or the Ford out of those three vehicles? Which one do you like best? Have you driven them? Are they comfortable? Do you, have you actually like taken it out on the highway and the back roads? When you, when you did your test drive, did you just go around the block, or did you actually get out and put a little bit of mileage on it and get a feel for what it's going to be like to drive it every day, where the ergonomics are, how does the seat feel, things like that, um, because they're all good. And when the person's like, well, what's the reliability? He's always like, well, how many of them do you see on the side of the road? And I think if you if you look around right now, occasionally you see a broken down vehicle or something. Usually it's a guy changing a tire or he got a wreck. Back in the 70s and 80s, you saw people pulled over to the side of the road, broke the hell down all the time. We have gotten better at building vehicles. We've just made them more complicated as we've done that. If I was going to go out and buy a truck today as an old vehicle that I could work on, it would be something like this. That's why I'm leaning toward saying go ahead and do it, because you already have it. You're not having to buy it and then put the money into it, and then not sure how much it's really going to cost. You should be able to get airtight quotes from both sides of the house on this and be able to make a firm financial decision for yourself. And, uh, again, it's going to, be, it's going to have... And you, the guy that's going to do the motor rebuild is probably going to be like, it depends on what's in there, how much of it has to actually be replaced and, and, or, or redone, or is, am I going to be doing a valve and head job, or am I going to be looking at it and, and, and you know boring out the cylinders and putting new pistons in it and overboring it because the, there's a problem there. Is there a problem with the camshaft? Is there a problem with, you know, it's all that stuff. You really can't tell. But he should be able to say, if all I'm going to do is, a, you know, valves and, and, and head gaskets and put it back together, it's going to be this much. And when we get in there, if um, if there's all these other problems, a complete and total tear down, rebore, rebuild is going to be this much. Then you just budget to the high side. You assume it's going to be that much. And so, because once you're into it, it's very hard to, you know, you already, because he's going to charge you for what he did. And I would, I would get, because the, the, the body work and paint, should be a real easy thing to get a price on, okay? And if you decide you're not really sure about the high price of the motor and you go into it, it's going to be a lot easier to bail out and say, I'm just going to call it a wash if you hadn't already done the body work and the paint work where it looks nice. So get the mechanical soundness up first and then turn it over to your body shop. By the way, expect this to take a while. None of these guys get in a hurry. None of them do. And, and I'll tell you what, they do a lot of work for insurance uh, clients, and they seem to give them priority over the people that are paying out of pocket because the insurance companies are going to send them business and business and business and business. Get a couple different quotes, but uh, if it was mine, I would, I would rebuild it, especially with the family history attached to it because, man, I'd love to put my kid in it someday or maybe my grandkid. I might not trust my kid. Put it with my grandkid. It'll be long enough that it will really mean something by the time it went there. And those old vehicles, if they're properly maintained, they can be around that long. 
Change the dadgone oil in it every 3,000 miles. I know people get away with it today, but there's a reason. The motors are built to go longer between maintenance today than they were in the past. Next up, um, if you like the work we do here at the Survival Podcast, remember one way that you can always support what we're doing is when you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and uh, there's a link there you can click and get on over to Amazon, see their deals of the day, and from there you can just do your shopping like you normally do, and anything you buy after you click that link, we get credit with as an affiliate for transferring you over to the Amazon website. Um, and then I also put up an item for review every day. Today's item for review is an encore item from last year. And I'm, I'm encoring it because I think this belongs in more houses than it's in within our community right now. I, I really do. They are E-Tech City's LED nightlight flashlight rechargeable emergency lights. I've been an advocate of these, basically like a light, nightlight that you plug in, but if the power goes off, they come on. And you can pick them up and walk around like a flashlight with them. And when you walk by them, there's a motion detector, and they turn on automatically. So when you walk out at night or down the hallway at night, you don't bust your toe. Um, and I, I've been an advocate of that type of technology for a very long time. And I recommended a product by Sylvania over eight years ago. And they would work for a while, but eventually they would overdrive the recharge. And they would go bad. And it was like, well, every two years you're going to replace them. They're not that much money. For what they do, they're that valuable. Because what happens in a household, no matter how prepared you are for a black light, is the lights go out at the wrong time. Oh, I always have my flashlight and my EDC. So you have your EDC on you when you're taking a shower and you got soap in your eyes? Right? And if you live in a house with a well and the water shuts off, like that's when freaking, that, I'm telling you, right? Or when your kid is in the playroom upstairs playing, and the lights go off and he's scared and he's crying and stuff like that. That's, that's when this stuff happens. Having these all around the house, power goes off, emergency lights come on. They don't light the whole house up, but everybody can see where everybody is. And you can get places. And these ones, they don't, the, the adapter plugs in and they sit in there and they charge wirelessly. And they run on LEDs, so they're very, very battery conscious. So they last a long time when the power's out. Well, you can pick it up and use it like a flashlight, and you know where you go now to your blackout kit, where you keep all your stuff. So you can get your emergency lanterns and stuff like that, or your candles or what have you, or anything else you need. You should have all the stuff, at least the basic, let's, let's deal with the blackout initially, and then figure out, do we need to pull the generator out? Do we need to go to battery backup systems? Or are we just going to wait it out because it's probably not a big deal? You know, It's not real cold out. It's not real hot out. It's the middle of the night. They'll probably have it fixed by morning. If not, then we'll pull out the other gear. You figure out what you're going to do, but you need that basic, let's get the house in somewhat of an order so we know what's going on. And let's do what Stephen Harris says. We'll pull the ice cream out of the freezer and eat it because it's the thing that's going to melt the fastest. And throw a blanket over the refrigerator or the, the freezer to ke help keep it stay cold and just, you know, listen to the radio or something for a little bit and do some family camping in, in, the, in the living room. You, you can do whatever you want, but having those lights to get into that mode is really valuable. Those of you with little kids, I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than being covered in soap, have it burning your eyes, the water shuts off because your well pump shut off, and your kid is screaming and crying in the hallway in the dark, and you're naked with no water, trying to find a towel in the dark to get your eyes cleaned out so you can go find your kid. But first got to find your flashlight that's in your slacks that are on the bed and you bust your toe. That's what these prevent. And I'll tell you what I love about them. 
We have them in our kitchen area, and I'm a, I'm a you know, nighttime, get a glass of water type guy or go check on everything one more time before I go to bed. And I got all the lights out in the house. They come on. I can see where I'm going. That alone makes them worth having. E-Tech Cities, LED nightlight, flashlight, rechargeable emergency light. They are the T-SPAS item of the day. You'll find them at tspaz.com where you'll find all of our reviews. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. The song of the day today is, well, you know, John Adam really didn't give me a song title. He, he did and he didn't. Um, what, here's what John sent me for 1979. Pink Floyd, The Wall. A double album became the premise for the 1982 movie of the same name. By 1982, you had to be living under a rock not to have heard songs from this album. I remember my dad, who was a school teacher, not appreciating the lyric, We don't need no education, as annoying for its poor grammar. Oh, the irony of lost irony there, huh? Um, that was the point. Um, of course, another brick in the wall, part one and two, were on the album The Wall. I think that's what John's getting at. And I was like, do I play just part two? I thought, you know what? I can do whatever I want. So I'm going to play part one and part two, the slow kind of intro thing and then the continuation into part two, which did not play consecutively in the album. One of the things I've always loved about Pink Floyd is their albums are usually themed together and there'll be words in one song that refer back to another song or are even the title of the other song. The, the albums tend to tell an, an evolving story. Uh, I, I guess the, the album that's done that more than any album out there was uh, by a completely different artist, Meatloaf with Bat Out of Hell. That whole album is a continuation from the first song to the last song of like a giant rock opera story. And we're going to have to play. It just makes me realize I don't think I've ever played Meatloaf. So when we get through... When we get through our uh, year that was matching, we'll be we'll be digging into the meatloaf archives. Today we're going to go with the wall, and I think there was a sentiment beginning to rise back then with the concept that schools were just programming our children to be another brick in the wall, or as I always say, another cog in the machine. But like many artists, I think Pink Floyd was ahead of their time, as big as this was. I think with the movement towards self-education, unschooling, homeschooling, etc., if this album had come out in 2015, it would have been even bigger. I really do. I think it would have that universal of a message. And it's, I think one of the reasons that this has stuck around so long, a lot of our you know, younger folks, millennial generation type folks, you know, 17, 18, 20 years old, when I talk to them, about music from my era, you know, from the 70s and the 80s. They don't know anything about it. Maybe they've heard this. But they damn well know Pink Floyd, and they damn well know The Wall. And look at how far we are from there. Folks, 1979, 38 years. 38 years. Now, what that means, if you talk to a 19-year-old about this song, That song's been around for twice as long as they have, and they're still likely to know about it. That says something. And it is the feeling of 1979. Like I said today, this is the first year I really can say I remember what it was like in that year. This rebellious attitude, this feeling that things were all screwed up, no real certainty as to how we were going to get out of it, 
but yet some level of an optimism that we could, that we were our own answer. That's what 1979 was like, and things are fixed in a change in a big way over the next 10 years. With that, I hope you enjoy your Friday. I hope you enjoy your weekend. I'm sorry about the technical screw-ups that had shows go out really late over the past few days. Um, today, I will not make that mistake, and I'm going to send you off to your weekend with some rock and roll in a big way. Pink Floyd with The Wall, parts one and two. With that, this has been Jack Smirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dad is across the ocean. Leaving just a memory. Oh